episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Um, so our next lecture is the Raymond Gutierrez lecture, and that's going to give, be given to us by Dr. Cavusi, who's here. Uh, and this is the complicated decisions required to eliminate uh, never events. Uh, Dr. Cavusi is Chair of Urology for Northwell Health, and Robert S. Waldman, MD, Robert B. Gardner, Professor of Urology at Zucker School of Medicine. He heads the Arthur Smith Institute for Urology, dedicated to the treatment of urologic disease through innovative surgical procedures, diagnosis, and medical care. And he came to North, Northwell from Johns Hopkins Medical Institute in Baltimore, where he served as Vice Chair of Urology, Chief Division of uh, Endourology, and is the Patrick C. Walsh Distinguished Professor of Urologic Surgery at Johns Hopkins. Thank you, Dr. Kavisi. Thank you, and uh, I want to thank the AUA uh, thank uh, Dr. Messing, thank Denstead, everyone for the incredible honor. Um, I think when you get asked of these, the residents said you must be one of the old guys now because you're giving a name lecture. So I guess that's true. So uh, I'm going to give uh, a talk about uh, never events. And just disclosures here, um, I'm on the advisory, medical advisory board for these two organizations, but we'll not talk about them specifically in this talk. So Never Events came from an Institute of Urology, uh, not an Institute of Urology, Institute of Medicine report uh, around 2000 that uh, demonstrated that there were uh, many, many deaths in the United States uh, from medical errors. And then shortly thereafter, a fellow by the name of Ken Kaiser at the National Quality Forum came up with this term, Never Events. And at that time, I thought this is a bunch of crap, to be honest. Right? So this is another thing, government getting involved in, in medicine and our nonsense. But as we all do, as we get our hair a little grayer, uh, we, we learn that, hey, maybe it isn't, isn't that much crap. And I'd like to present at least my thoughts and evolution on this over time in terms of what we can do to continue pushing uh, forward the idea of, of getting rid of never events. Now, the initial definition of never events, which still is, is that it's a serious complication that occurs to a patient. It is unambiguous of what has happened. It is something that can be preventable, all right? And uh, the take-home message is preventable changes over time. And it is indicative of a system failure. It is not an individual's failure, it is a system failure. So some examples of never events are, and early on they went wrong part, right? You take out the, the wrong body part, the wrong side, you do it on the wrong patient, you do the wrong surgery, there's a retained foreign object, and an intraoperative death. So these things are never events, and this is like in, in the US mom and apple pie. Yeah, of course, we all understand this, but it still doesn't happen it does happen quite frequently in the U.S. Despite, despite this, but it's much less than used to occur. And some things that happen are the whole timeout procedure. And, and a lot of uh, back about 15 years ago, 20 years ago when this first came out, everyone looked at the airline industry because the airline industry, it really puts safety front and center. And a lot of physicians got uh, taken aback by this saying, well, wait a minute, we put safety front and, se and center. Um, and there was some resistance, and I can tell at our institution when these things came out, there was some institutions, well, I know what surgery I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera. 
But as it turned out, after a while, people got into the groove, started doing it, and it has prevented injury to patients at our institution, I know other places in the world. This is a fairly simple thing to institute. The hard thing was conceptualization that we need to be fixed, that there is a problem. That's always, and this goes back to Dr. Egener's uh, presentation earlier today, which was phenomenal, is self-realization. A lot of this is about self-realization. So I gave you some examples of never events, and there's been an evolution of never events, and there are things that you would expect as a never event, such as a, a uh, a wrong-sided surgery. But what's happening over time is that what was once thing that was was expected, uh, what things that were expected, like, in, like uh, incontinence after certain surgeries, which is acceptable now, well, there's a certain incontinence rate, it's becoming unacceptable. We should take it as unacceptable. I'm going to give an example here of central lines. So I'm old enough of the era that uh, as residents, we would just put central lines in They'd call us and we'd put central lines in people, right? And the problem with that is that there were infections associated with central lines. So something simple was done. So they, and, uh, they started these programs in which only specific ind individuals were allowed to place these central lines via a standardized procedure. So how hard could be putting a central line in? Again, an intern could do it, right? But what they found is that there was a significant decrease in infections. And this is why this is considered in the U.S. a never event at this point in time where people really track this. And most importantly, um, in the eyes of the government and the eyes of the hospitals, the mean cost decreased from each hospital, the expense in terms of taking care of these complications. So even something as simple as this was addressed that we used to accept, yes, a certain number of people get accept sepsis with the line. If you accept the fact that's not the right thing that should happen, then things move along. So what about our challenge in urology? There are certain things that happen that we accept today, all right? Just like over 150 years ago, if somebody had an open uh, cystolithotomy, about a quarter of patients died, most of them from sepsis, and that was okay back then, all right? Right now, there are things like positive margins and continence transfusions, things on these lists that we sort of accept because where we are in our technology. But I think from our mind standpoint, we need, we need to really challenge ourselves and change this and move this forward. And the complicated is, again, as Scott said earlier today, is to be able to have self-realization. Always look at ourselves and, and there's nothing wrong with, uh, with having some flaws in us because all of us, everyone in this room has flaws. I have probably more flaws than most people in this room. But we all have flaws. We have to accept them and use them and support each other. And I'm going to talk about we have flaws in judgment. There are flaws in technical skills. There are motivation problems and in our effective domains. So what is the job requirement for a surgeon? You know, and if you go to other industries, you go to a consultant industry, they'll give you a list. These are requirements in a job. And really, there aren't really job requirements. However, the the uh, Royal Co College of Surgeons in the UK actually put together a list of what they think the, these cate categories of what surgeons should possess and probably what we should be looking at in our upcoming trainees. So this was um, recently put together. So in terms of these, I think the top two, the special knowledge problem solving, we're pretty good at moving that forward. 
um, and things like what the AUA has, the EAU, with the AUA guidelines and helping us with our judgments and moving things forward. The ABU with lifelong learning, putting that into effect. Again, there's a lot of grumbling about why do we have to do this, but it's something that makes sense to keep current to again help our patients and to eliminate these never events from happening and really taking it to heart. Also, the wonderful thing, though, is knowledge at our fingertips. And I used to get upset when the residents would look up answers during conference on their iPhones, and I'm thinking, well, in clinic, somebody comes up with a drug that I have no idea what it is. I pull out my iPhone, and I look up what that drug is, too. I don't think it's – we shouldn't look at that as a flaw anymore. It is something to augment us to make us better physicians to be able to look at this. Maybe we shouldn't put as much value on encyclopedic knowledge as we did in the past. There are other things that we maybe we have to put things on. What about manual dexterity and our physical skills, all right? We're all great surgeons, right? This is what we believe because it's a healthy thing to believe that you're good, right? Otherwise, it would be destructive. But in reality, in terms of delivering to patients, it may not be what is in our mind or what they had initially thought was going to happen during, during a procedure. And the whole question comes up, are surgeons born or made, or is it a combination of both? And I don't have the answer to this. However, we know that there is a certain learning curve on everything. So even putting a nail in as a kid, that we didn't get them all straight, or finally figuring out, well, I should drill a pilot hole before I put this screw in and split this piece of wood in half. There, there are things that, that, that you, you learn. And this is a, a great study from Memorial uh, that, that uh, looks at their positive margins after prostatectomy. Each line represents a different physician, and each physician, um, it shows over time. And there are a lot of cases here. Look <laughs> at this. But there is a disparity in terms of positive margins. And you can make the argument that, well, there may be patient selection and whatnot. Isn't that judgment? You can make a disparity. You can make an argument that it is from technical parts that have to do with this. And we all know we have people that in our hospitals, if somebody asks us for a recommendation for a general surgeon to, to fix something, we'll say, oh, yeah, go see so-and-so. And maybe you shouldn't see so-and-so. So there are differences. We know there are differences. And there are differences in surgeons. And right now, the way we pick surgeons. We don't do any testing of our trainees before coming in on their clinical ability. Sometimes I say, well, they play musical instruments, so they must be pretty good. I play musical instruments, so I'm not very good. But there are other people who, who, who are good. You can't do that. There has to be formal testing. And we need to look to other industries, the sports industry, professional sports industry. And I, I will argue anybody, what we do is much more important than what professional the sports industry does, but they have scouts that observe people, watch people, see what they do. The NFL, the NBA have combines, and there are certain things that matter and certain things that don't matter in that, but they have objective testing to, um, to look at someone's baseline skills. And if somebody has a certain level of baseline skills, the training hopefully will be shorter, and I think there's good data out that regarding that. And they may have less of a learning curve. And I think we should start at a younger age. And we, we, we're pushing in our institution started a PGY2 course with people interested in surgery. And we can see a difference. And we're consulting people. Maybe, you know, it's going to take longer for you to become a decent surgeon to do this. 
And the wonderful thing for residents, uh, medical students in the audience, this is a field rife for, for exploration and expounding, all right? It's not gonna affect any of the practicing urologists in the room right now because we're already board certified, we got it. And talking about board certification, we get this thing from the American Board of Urology. We hang it on our wall, it's very nice. Every 10 years, you take your test, you get it again. And I can go to my hospital and say, I would like to do microsurgery today, vasovasostomy, uh, and then tomorrow I'm gonna go ahead and do a radical prostatectomy. In reality, if I did either of those, I should be um, booked on an assault charges, all right? Because I haven't done them in years, but it still says I can, and if there's push come to sub that something in the back of my mind makes me think I'm, I'm actually a superhuman, uh, again, I may attempt something or whatnot. I think that, again, self-reflection, we need to give things up. And I remember when I gave up doing radical prostatectomies, how could I do that? I trained with uh, Dr. Catalone, and I was at Hopkins with Pat Walsh, and I ga gave up on it because my continence rates were nowhere good, as good as my partner's continence rates were. I, I, it, it was hard to do, but urology is up there. So many things to do in urology, we don't have to do everything. And I think that this whole idea that, especially in the US, there are rural areas that don't have urologists, I'm thinking, well, so what? There are rural areas that don't have a Home Depot. You know, what's, what, they can travel. I'd rather travel and get very good care than have a jack of all trades take care of of my plumbing one day and take care of my heart the next day. I, I think it's, it's not in this day and age, not right to think. And so in terms of, has, uh, uh, of saying this, there are some things that maybe we do commonly and that we're good at, and there are other things that maybe we fall short of and we should think about not doing again. And at this point, it comes from within and doing it, but in the future, it may be from without doing it and saying, hey, look, and I, we rely on hospitals. Again, the hospitals have a different motivation and that's a whole nother talk. I think what's important, there are really important things out there in terms of, of seeing how we do in terms of outcomes registry. There are a whole bunch of registries that you can get self-assessment for this, especially if you're in a smaller area and whatnot, you're really not sure how good you're doing there. There are, there are ways of getting that information. And operative assessment, what's out there now, it's pretty primitive starting with CSATs where you can do a case. Um, if you're doing a robot case, it's recorded. Um, it's assigned to somebody to review. They give you a report, tell you how you do and can try to circularly do this. But what's coming down the pipe is all this AI with big data. And this is in its infancy, again, something exciting for residents and, and medical students to start getting into in terms of analyzing in real time what's in the operating room. And we as physicians, I remember we first put a unit in our operating room and the nurses were sabotaging the unit, the cameras, they were turning them around because they were worried somebody was watching them and the anesthesiologist was very upset about it. This is something we have to get over. It's not punitive, it is to learn and it's something we need to embrace. And in terms of big data, it's gonna help with real-time decision-making and those of you who are using the Da Vinci, at many places, the kin kinematic data, you're moving things around, is getting piped back to their headquarters. They're looking how you move around, correlating with what's happening on the video, right? This is happening today, all right? And, uh, and you shouldn't think of it, well, this is an evil plan. It's, it's, it's an idea to make medicine better, to, to teach us moves that are better, to help our hands move better in, during the operation. And then there's a whole group of things that I'm not sure we do the best thing on in terms of, of of, uh, of looking at effective type of things. 
there's a lot of there's studies that show that medical errors during, during the poor communication is very common. So communication skills, and again, are these something that we look at from our our medical uh, our medical students applying that really? And there are conflicts, and this is again not to blame fault, but it is human nature. There are conflicts that if you own something, there is a, a bias. You have a bias because my kid's smarter than anybody else's kid. Right? It's a real bias. And also conflicts just from uh, looking at uh, fatigue and wellness. We look at, well, oh no, not another wellness lecture, you know. But in reality, it's hard to get out of bed sometimes. You know, you call in the middle of the night and sometimes you're not making the right decision on that because, you know, besides getting to the hospital, I can get out of convinced everybody else to come in and help me with this. So how do other businesses do this? This is Fortune 500 companies do this. Well, they do a lot of things that I think we need to do and starting in the medical school, medical student level, in terms of behavioral interviews, pre-hiring, et cetera. And there are some jobs you apply for, a lot of jobs that you're going to 10 to 20 interviews, 10 to 20 steps before you get there because they really want to make sure you're right for the job. There's nothing more important than medicine. We should be doing something similar. There are some novel creative tools and this is a, out of, it started at the University of Michigan, including Utah and, and, and Duke, in terms of trying to assess communication skills. And this is a Lego game. So there's an architect on one side, there's a, a, a builder on the other side. The architect designs something and is verbally talking to the, uh, the builder in terms of how to put the Lego pieces together. We do a similar thing with origami. And it's interesting because you learn about communication skills or things you can quantitate regarding that. And you can also look at frustration, how people deal if something gets difficult. Can they keep their cool, et cetera? There, there are interesting things to do on this. We talked about this. Another thing in terms of teamwork is something that's used by, by, by uh, um, pharmacologists of all people is teamwork to use escape rooms in terms of you have to work together to get a result. And uh, there is, again, a whole field to be able to quantitate what's going on in these rooms in terms of learning about leadership, learning about team co cooperation, et cetera. So healthcare spending across the world is a big part of the GDP, all right? So that tells you a couple of things. Healthcare is important, and the government wants to find ways to push this down so they can spend money on other things, right? So it is very important. So because of that, if we don't take ownership of changing these things, there are going to be outside forces there that are going to be moving. And it's already happened, at least in this country. In the, in the old days, I remember my dad telling me that physicians owned hospitals, run hospitals. We don't anymore. Probably, we probably shouldn't. There are probably people better off at doing that. But we can't let people run how, we, how medicine is practiced. That is something that we need to do and take ownership to. And I'm going to conclude with this slide because I know everybody here had to write an essay or go through their heart why they became a doctor. And this, this, this painting really is emotion. I'm sorry. Um, because this little girl doesn't know about self-help, right? But she loves this doll, right? She entrusts her most important thing, this doll, to a doctor, to us. Right? And that's something we should be very proud of, that we are the stewards of medicine. And we take, should take ownership of this and push this forward.
And I think we have to acknowledge that we're not there yet. We're probably never going to get there. But we have to acknowledge we're not there yet and, 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 and know that it's not acceptable. We really have to move things forward and think and, and do things that are uncomfortable to us and question ourselves, which is always very uncomfortable. Support each other in this when we do have problems, when we, we're trying these different things. Innovate. And I'm proud of being a urologist. I think we are one of the most innovative fields in the world.